Good morning. Hi, and today we're going to be doing lesson number um, three in our quarterly, First and Second Thessalonians, and the title is Thessalonica in Paul's Day. And do I get a hand for saying that properly this week? Yes. Okay, thank you. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and study today. We ask that you will join us, lighten our minds, and fill our hearts with your love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And uh, in the memory text for this week, it says, though I am free, this is out of 1 Corinthians nine nineteen. it says, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And what are your thoughts about that passage? Is Paul a slave? No, he says explicitly that he is free, but he makes himself a slave, meaning he's freely choosing to act the part of a slave, but he's actually not a slave. What is he trying to communicate with this type of language? Hey, I'm free, but I'm a slave. What's he trying to communicate? Serving others. Serving others, okay. So would this have anything to do with the, the law of love? Yes. Is he saying that once he was free, once he was set free from the bondage or the law of sin and death by Christ, he has freely chosen to take the role of a servant or a slave in order to give of himself to help others to reach them, to help them experience freedom from the law of sin and death. The relationship that God wants with us, we all know that God, John fifteen fifteen, no longer calls us slaves or servants, but he calls us friends. Does God want us to be free slaves? those who freely choose to live their lives loving others. And this is what I mean by free slaves. For those of you who don't know yet, uh, Tuesday night, actually, 12.09 a.m. July 3rd, Stephanie gave birth to Lennox Nicole, 7 pounds, 5 ounces, our granddaughter, and we have now observed how both Michael and Stephanie are slaves (laughs) to that child. Are they not? Yes. Yes. They have chosen to freely enslave themselves for the welfare of that child. And what is the motivation? Love. Love. Love is the motivation. And Second Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ compels us. For the love of Christ compels us. And I, I'm suggesting that, that that type of enslavement is what Paul is talking about here. When we love somebody, we become a slave for their best interests, a slave to their welfare. And I'm going to tell you, Michael and Stephanie will be slaving for quite a few years. <laughs> and those of you who are parents, you've, you've gone through that enslavement, haven't you? Yes, and you're still doing it. No, not at your age, Margaret. You can't be. There has to be hope of freedom. Okay. Um, but this language that Paul uses, I'm free, yet I'm a slave, could it be misunderstood to mean something different than what we just described? You don't want to be free in God's service. It's a slave and freedom. But it's so fulfilling. It's so everything. You're saying we, some don't want to be free? No, I'm saying we are all free, but we don't. If it was taken away, you know, like now you're free, free, free. We don't want to be free. We like the slave position of serving with God. Well, I, I actually, I, in, in the sense that we just talked about, the slavement of love, yes. But I'm going to t- turn it the other way. I think you're right on the other side. I think there are people who don't like freedom. It scares them. They don't want the responsibility of freedom. They want to be told what to do. They don't want to be, they fear making a mistake. They fear doing the wrong thing. They don't want to be responsible. So they want someone else in authority over them to tell them what to do 
so that they can then not have any stress. Well, you know what? God said it. I believe it. I just do what he said. It's not my fault. And I think a lot of people live in fear and prefer the true slave, the, the historic way of thinking of slave mentality. You know, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. We don't ask questions. The master says, jump, we jump. This type of an approach. And I think this is very common in many, many circles around, many Christian circles. Yes. We've seen that historically, because countries that have been uh, under communist rule and determine people's lives of where they should work, what jobs they should take, uh, what they can do and cannot do. And then when they got freedom, um, they almost, they, some wished that they had the communism back because they wanted to be told what to do. They didn't, in, they didn't re- enjoy their freedom at first because it was too overwhelming to be free. Yes, that there's a certain security in having a very external structure put upon you. You know where you're supposed to be, what time you're supposed to get up, well, what you're supposed to do when you get off. You don't have to worry about any responsibilities in life. You don't have problems to solve. Somebody else is solving all your problems for you. Now, there's a certain security that comes with that type of enslavement. But is that what God really wants from us? No. And I'm going to suggest there are certain versions of Christianity that kind of distort what Paul says here about we have freedom from sin, but now we're slaves to God, and God now basically tells us what to do and we approach it. God said it, I believe that settles it. We don't ask questions. So we're not free to make our own choices now. We're free from sin, but we are now slaves to God. This kind of distortion. You've heard this. Yes, Margaret. Is, isn't it that type of mentality and personality that gets caught up in, in the like the branch Davidian? Oh, I think so. She's talking about cults. That there, that there are people, yes, why, why would people get called up into a cult? Because it does provide a certain false security that you don't have to think. Somebody else will think for you. And some people, believe it or not, are afraid of thinking. Yes, right here. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn to me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But in Ephesians 5, he says, you know, you, you, are no, you don't have to any longer be entangled with the yoke of bondage. So Christ's yoke of bondage is so much more wonderful. Uh, his type of slavery, you might say, is so much more wonderful than slavery to the devil and sin. Yeah, absolutely. Because when you bond up with Christ, what you have is actual restoration of Last fruit of the Spirit, self-control or self-governance. We, we get our freedom back with Christ. I want to jump to Monday's lesson, then we're going to come back to Sunday's lesson um, because I want to make sure we get some of the historical setting that the, uh, of what was going on in Thessalonica during Paul's day. And um, the lesson in Monday's lesson asks us to look at some of the cults going on that Paul was dealing with. Coming into a city, they were worshiping these various um, pagan gods. And I thought before we look at the actual cults, let's do a little context setting for us in the context in the in the great controversy context setting history in the flow of history where we find ourselves uh, down through the flow of history did satan know that messiah was was going to come at one point in human history Yes, Genesis 3 tells us that God spoke directly to the serpent that the seed of the woman was going to come and crush his head and he would uh, bruise his heel. So uh, Satan knew from from that direct interchange plus the history of what was provided through the prophets, Satan was aware of the, the the prophetic message. Did Satan know or at least have a good idea about the approximate time in history when Messiah would arrive? Well, didn't the wise men from the east have a 
have from the prophetic message a good idea of when the Messiah was going to arrive? And, and if those wise men from the east knew, well, well, Satan was aware. That's why he was having Herod try and trick those guys into killing the Messiah. So yes, he, he also not only knew the Messiah was coming, he had approximate awareness of when he would come. And do you think that Satan studied the Old Testament sanctuary system to glean some ideas in the symbology of what Messiah was going to do? Then, with all that in mind, do you think that Satan sat back in his recliner waiting to see what Christ was going to do? Or was he busy afoot trying to infect the minds of men with concepts that when Messiah came, they would be confused uh, with other concepts they already believe in? I want to suggest that's what was happening. There's many counterfeits to what Christ was going to do, and these are called the mystery religions. And these were some of the things that were being believed uh, in, the, uh, in the ancient world, both in Egypt, Rome, and Greece at the time that Christ came. So let's look at some of the, the pagan gods that were being worshipped. The first I want to look at is Osiris. And you've all heard of Osiris, right? Osiris was an uh, ancient Egyptian god who was considered a merciful judge of the dead and the afterlife and uh, the, o- the overseer of the underworld that granted uh, life to everything, including sprouting vegetation and the fertile flooding of the Nile River. He was considered, quote, the lord of love, he who permanently is benign and youthful, and the lord of silence. The kings of Egypt, and as well as the regular people, were associated with him in death. This is why they did mummification, because they believed in a resurrection, and Osiris was the god who would bring resurrection. Osiris himself died and was resurrected to life. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, Osiris uh, had a mystery festival that was celebrated in two phases, uh, beginning in November, which commemorated the death of the god. And then on that same day, they planted the grain in the ground on the day of the the celebration starting to celebrate the death of Osiris. And the uh, death of the grain was symbolic of the death of Osiris. And the sprouting of the grain was symbolic of his resurrection. Does it remind you of a parable at all? Unless the wheat fall into the ground and die, and Christ uses this parable. Okay. Well, the first phase of the festival was a public drama depicting the murder. So Osiris, by the way, was son of uh, son of uh, uh, was it uh, considered a divine son of God? Um, was murdered by his evil brother Set. Was resurrected to life and had a child uh, with his uh, consort uh, Isis named Horus. Was his uh, was his child. Um, which comes into play in a moment. Uh, the passion of Osiris was reflected in the name Wenenefer, and I said that right, Wenenefer, um, which uh, means the one who continues to be perfect. So Osiris is the one who continues to be perfect and alludes to his post-mortem powers, his powers after death. Part of the Osiris mythology um, have uh, prompted comparisons with Christianity, particularly uh, the Egyptians of every period in which they are known believe that Osiris was of divine origin. He suffered death and mutilation at the hands of evil power. After that great struggle with these powers, he rose again. He became henceforth the king of the underworld and the judge of the dead. And um, that that because he had conquered death, the righteous also would conquer death. In Osiris, the Christian Egyptians found a prototype of Christ. And in uh, the pictures and statues of Isis, and if you look in the historical statues, Isis would be typically depicted with her son Horus suckling at her breast. This has been translated into Christianity with Mary having the Virgin Mary, the Virgin Mary having Christ suckling at the breast. It was really Isis and Horus that got translated over into Christianity. Um, 
And this was, uh, and then one other tradition became incorporated into Christianity, particularly in the apocryphal gospel of Nicodemus, that of Christ at his death descending down into hell in order to set slaves free or sinners free that are bound in hell. This is what um, Osiris, of course, did when he died. He descended into hell and defeated the powers in hell and uh, resurrected again. Biblical scholar Bruce Metzer notes that in uh, one account of the Osirian cycle, that he dies on the 17th day of the month and rises on the 19th day of the month, comparable to, you know, Christ being in the tomb for three days. So, and then the next god we're going to look at is one called Serapis. Serapis, S-E-R-A-P-I-S, was a Greco-Egyptian god who was purposely created and devised by the Ptolemy I. If you remember, Ptolemy was one of the four generals of Alexander, who when Alexander died, the kingdom split into four kingdoms. Ptolemy and his descendants took Egypt. And Ptolemy wanted to um, have a god that he could use to control the people. And so he actually and his descendants created this god uh, that mixed Greco and Egyptian myths into this god, Serapis. And Serapis... Um, was worshipped actually at the time of Paul. Both Osiris and Serapis were being worshipped in Thessalonica when, at the time that Paul was uh, sending letters and, and visiting Thessalonica. Uh, the god was depicted as a Greek in appearance, but had Egyptian trappings uh, and combined iconogra- iconography uh, uh, from uh, a great many cults. And let me walk through some of those things with you. Serapis... Um, Notice, uh, the critics noticed that Serapis um, was called the Good Shepherd. He was considered a healer. Uh, Christianity adapted the practices of the Serapian uh, 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 pagan cults by using lights, vestments, bells, processions, and the music of the cult that they used in their practices were incorporated into the Christian worship. Uh, Serapis was a sacrificial bull where Christ was a sacrificial lamb. And if you've watched sometimes in the depictions of some of the um, movies of ancient Rome where they would sacrifice bulls and have the blood run over and they, and they would actually sacrifice Serapis the bull and the, and the worshiper would be actually standing beneath the bull and the blood of the bull would wash over the, the, the worshiper and they would be cleansed by the blood. Okay? So uh, we, we don't have any songs about cleansing by the blood, do we? Okay? Serapis was annually sacrificed for the sins of Egypt. So every year he would be sacrificed for the sins of Egypt. Many gods contributed to his nature, including Zeus, Helios, Hades, Asclepius, and um, and and this is what these different gods were. Zeus, of course, brought him the attributes of weather and controlling the powers of nature. Um, Helios was the god of the sun and brought him the power of the sun god and sovereignty over the earth. Um, Hades was linked with the afterlife and governance of the dead and powers of resurrection. And Asclepius, uh, which is, uh, is the god of the healing arts and is god of medicine, and his symbol is the caduceus, the, the pole with a serpent around it. That's the symbol of Asclepius. And so he gave him the powers of healing. So you see the, uh, the relationship through these these various cults that were going on, and these are the gods that are being worshipped. By the way, um, in many of the cults in uh, Thessalonica, um, by the time of Paul, Serapis had replaced Osiris as the consort of Isis. So now it was either they were either worshipping Osiris and Isis together, or they're worshipping Serapis and Isis together. So Serapis and Osiris were kind of competitors. And then the, the lesson points us to a cult called the... <clears throat> the uh, 
Cabarrus cult. And they talk about an actual person named Cabarrus who spoke up for the disenfranchised and was eventually murdered by his two brothers and became a godlike figure in the, uh, to the Thessalonians. And if you do a literature search on this, there are reports of this particular version of the story, but it's the minority report. The, in, the, in the research that I did, the majority of the historians actually report that Carab- uh, Cabarrus was actually a pagan god Carl uh, uh, Donfried, in the article Cults of Thessalonica, supplies reports uh, that the city worshipped multiple cults, but the most important was Cabarrus, who was the city's chief deity. And according to Donfried and others, Cabarrus was significantly connected with fertility. And thus, uh, Paul mentions uh, in, to the Thessalonians in his letters the need to turn away from the idols, to maintain personal holiness, to avoid fornication, and he contrasts holy living with the passionate lusts of the heathens because the um, the god Cabarrus was a sexual fertility uh, god. Uh, Paul's only other references to sexual immorality uh, are found in 1 Corinthians and the catalog works of the flesh in Galatians. So Thessalonica and the city of Corinth were dominated by sexual cults, uh, either the Cabarrus cult or Aphrodite in, in, in uh, Corinth. So, anyway, after I give you this little background on, on the mindset, um, what are your thoughts about the various gods that were being worshipped in Thessalonica during Paul's day? Do you see a, a, a potential working to counterfeit what Christ would do? Yes. Do you see how Satan... Uh, how easy it was for Christianity to become infected with pagan ideas. How it was so easy for the things they've always believed be, about these gods, you know, Cyrus died, raised, or was again, governs hell, went down to hell, speed the slaves of hell, and all this kind of stuff. How when Paul comes and teaches about Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, came to free us from the powers of the devil and, and, uh, and uh, bring resurrection and resurrect the dead and so forth and so on. How there would be a potential merging and remember the society, how many of them had Bibles they could study at home? So they hear the story by an orator, Paul, Timothy, Silas, Barnabas. Somebody comes and tells them the story. They've got to go home and use their memory. And their memory has been trained their whole life to think about what? Osiris, Serapis, Cabarrus. Now they're hearing a new one. Would it be surprising if some of those ideas merged? No. You see the struggles they may have had? Yeah, this is why I think it was helpful that Paul send some of these letters. They at least have the letters of Paul now. Some of them may have been able to go to the synagogue and get the Old Testament scriptures and study those. But even if they could, they couldn't take them home with them. How many of them could actually read the Hebrew text in, in these Greek cities? Yes, Lisa. I wonder if those false gods were really a perversion of the true God originally. And if it stems back to you know, falsifying what God was really like back in the... Well, that's, that's, that's exactly what we're suggesting. Yes, absolutely, that Satan was pre-plotting a distortion so that when Christ came, they would actually have all these mischaracterizations of Christ um, you know, preceded into their minds. on the true God that created us, perhaps, but distorted. Of course, yeah. yes, yes. You know, Satan, cut, Satan can't create anything. He can only distort what God creates, perverts what God creates. Yes. Um, so, with that in mind, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are Paul, and you've arrived in Thessalonia. How are you going to approach the people? With this history, knowing what they think, what would you tell them? 
Any, any ideas? A bunch of pagans? You're going to burn in hell. How would you approach them? Do you see the challenge? By the way, Horus, for those who want to know, Horus was the god of war. When it was the son, Set, Set was the brother of Osiris, who murdered Osiris. And um, Isis went and, with her magical powers, resurrected Osiris. And uh, the, the, the myth of the Egyptians were that every year when the Nile would flood and bring fertility to the land, it was Isis' tears crying for Osiris' death. And this is kind of the mythology that they, they believed in. And that Horus was their son that went out and, um, and uh, defeated the enemy and uh, defeated Set, who killed his dad. And, uh, and he was the god of war that would... Uh, and he was the god you would see t- depicted with the human body and the hawk head. The human body, hawk head, that's, that's uh, Horus. So, all right, let's, let's jump back then to no thoughts on that. I, it's, it would be a tough one, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah, and you should think about that, what, meeting people where they are. Um, but I think that we can look down through history and see how pagan concepts have infected Christianity. And Christianity struggled with these concepts for a long, long time. And maybe even today we continue. Yes, Wendell. Many of our statues that we consider to be about biblical characters were originally made for a pagan purpose and were rechristened by their new owners. Has anybody visited Rome? Walked around to all the temples in Rome? Uh, Including the Basilica? St. Peter's Basilica? Uh, We were there, I guess, a year ago. And every one of them uh, just filled with, with pagan gods pagan uh, goddesses, pagan, uh, just pagan everything. They're just completely pagan, but they've just been Christianized. Um, yeah, some of them have an oculus in the center so that the sun god can shine in through the oculus at the center of the, of the dome. And they're really, really quite impressive architecture and things they built. Go back to the time of Christ in Rome. They're quite impressive. But yes, you're right. The, the, the pagan constructs are just woven and brought right in. Sunday's lesson asks us to read um, John 11, 48 through 50. Somebody read that for us. John 11, 48 through 50. Raise your hand so we can get you on mic. John 11, 48 through 50. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them said, a certain one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said unto them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation should not perish. And then the lesson after this passage asks this question. How were the political and religious decisions regarding the ministry of Jesus impacted by the arrival of the Romans in the first century, Palestine and Jerusalem? Think through the logic expressed here. In what frightening ways does it make sense? Remember to question the question. Always question the question. And the first question is, how were the political and religious decisions regarding the ministry of Jesus impacted by the arrival of Romans in first century Palestine and Jerusalem? Question the question. Were they? Was the ministry of Jesus impacted by the arrival of Romans? And and what I mean by that is, do you think if the Romans had not occupied Jerusalem at the time of Christ, that Israel was a free nation governed by Herod, 
Caiaphas being the high priest, that they would have treated Jesus differently? Yes or no? Okay. Why not? I agree with you, but the think through. Think through what, what, what the, the question gives the implication that it was the Roman occupation uh, and, uh, that led to it. If, if they would have treated Jesus just the same anyway, then what is the purpose of the Roman occupation? How is it being implemented here? Yes? The Roman occupation was actually used as an excuse for them treating Jesus the way they did. It was religion com- coming up against religion, and Rome was not part of that religion. Okay, so in fact, Romans did, did the Romans have an agenda to crucify Christ? You look at the history. What was Pilate attempting to do in his weakness, but still attempting? He was attempting to free Christ. He was not the one trying to crucify Christ. It was the religious leaders of the Jewish nation. And if they had the power to execute without Roman approval, would they even have gone to Pilate to start with? So this question in in the in the quarterly, how did the Roman occupation impact it? In my view, it, it actually uh, slowed the uh, the the uh, the death of Christ. It protected Christ uh, and gave him a longer. They would have stoned him much sooner. And if you read in John chapter eight fifty eight and fifty nine, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, "Before Abraham was, I am." At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself and slipped away from the temple grounds. Or John ten twenty two through 32. Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. In, it was winter. Jesus was in the temple area walking among Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, they were really wanting to know. They were searching for truth, right? If you're the Christ, tell us. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. I mean, where's Rome coming into these dialogues here? Where is the Roman op- occupation coming in here? Yes. But, but in that story with Pilate, to me it brings into very sharp, unequivocal focus when the Jews say his blood be upon us and our children. It brings into sharp focus in the great controversy for everyone to see the spirit that was at work against Christ. Yes, and, and so, so... Keep going. And so that... That last, that last question of Pilate, do you want me to crucify your king? And that, that was maybe one last, one last chance, so to speak, for this spirit uh, antithetical to Christ to say, eh, maybe. But I mean, it just brings to me in, into complete focus. So would you agree with me that the Roman occupation was not causal in his death? Correct. Would you all agree with that? In fact, Roman occupation was, was actually a, a buffering agent to slow the, 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 the attempted killing of Christ. Yes. So are you saying that if they hadn't been uh, governed by Rome and were a free nation, that Christ's message wouldn't have made any difference anyway? Like yeah, do, are you saying that, do you think that Rome actually slowed the message of Christ? No, I'm saying that would they have rejected Jesus if they weren't looking for a savior to set them free from Rome? Um, anyway, 
So, so I, I see what you're saying now. So because they were occupied by Rome, they, the occupation lent itself to their misunderstanding of his mission. Well, they wanted a savior that would set them free from Rome. They right. wanted him to set up an earthly kingdom and make them rulers instead of Rome. Do you think that if they weren't occupied by Rome, they were a free nation, but Rome occupied all the nations around them, that they would have been looking for a spiritual kingdom, or would they have been looking for Christ to come and still conquer the earth? Well, I think, yeah, they probably still would have wanted to be the rulers of the world, I guess. I don't know. I suspect that the way they, they operated here, that they were not looking for a spiritual kingdom at all. Yes. They weren't looking for a kingdom to renew hearts. They were looking for a kingdom to rule men. Because they were already so corrupt in their thinking. Yes. Um, this is, uh, we're going to get to Wendell, after I read this one, this is John twelve seventeen through 19. It says, Now the crowd that was with him, uh, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Does that have anything to do with Rome? Even if they were a free nation, are they going to go, oh, no worries, the whole world's going after him, but that's okay, we're free. No, I think this had to do with their power, their personal power, their personal ability to be adored and admired and worshipped and have authority over men. And he was, he was drawing men to him and away from them. They were losing their prestige. Yes, okay, Wendell. The Roman crucifixion was a part of the... Of the gospel story, just like the snake was lifted up on, on a cross, Christ was lifted up on a cross, and, and Roman crucifixion was not part of the, the Jewish tradition. So it altered how it was presented. Sure, it altered how it was presented, but that's all part of biblical foreknowledge. I mean, God knew the Romans were going to be there, and he knew how it was going to unplay, so that was part of the history in order for that symbology. But if the Romans wouldn't have been there, it would have been a different history with a different symbology. Yes. Sorry, didn't the Jews demand for him to be crucified because because of the prophetic verse, he that is he that's hanging on a tree is cursed? Or yeah, they did want him. Yes. They, they didn't demand for him to be beheaded. They didn't demand for him to be stoned. They didn't demand for him to be drowned. They were out there chanting, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" Because they wanted him hung on a tree. Yeah. So again, the Jews were behind the crucifixion, but you're right. The crucifixion was not a Jewish. Uh, uh, means of, of execution. It was a Roman means. Um, so it seems to me that the leadership of the Jewish nation sought to kill Christ independent of Rome's rule. In other words, Rome's rule wasn't the reason that they were doing this. Um, now what's going on here? Because think about this. These people who are seeking the death of Christ, these are theologians, these are Bible professors, these are priests, these are pastors, these are leaders in the church. They have spent their entire life promoting the gospel, committing themselves to working for God's cause. I mean, this is what they're doing. This is their career. They're professed, I mean, leaders of God. There's this voice on earth. What would motivate people who are committed their lives to be church leaders to want to stone someone? What would be the motivation for them to do that? How could somebody who pr professes to be uh, God's you know, agent working in God's behalf, what could motivate them to, to come to stone someone? I see several hands, yes. Nowadays we call it politics. Nowadays we call it politics. We will get to that in just a second. Yes, back in... Lisa. Oh, I was just going to say they, they don't uh, want someone to question their authority. They, um, 
they feel like they're threatened by that. Okay, so that's one of the ones bullets I put down. They felt their personal authority and popularity was threatened. Okay, so they had to stop that. Yes, right here. Question: How could a third of the angels who lived with God for all of their life be persuaded to change? Well, that, you know, that's an interesting question, and I think it's a slightly different question because the angels that that rebelled, maybe maybe they were picking up stones to stone Christ in heaven. Maybe they were just saying, "Hey, we want to be treated differently." But they were rejecting. They were they, they were rejecting, and of course, and the answer to that one's pretty straightforward, isn't it? I mean, that's a pretty straightforward one. What would cause a person who's married to a loving spouse to, uh, to uh, re- rebel against their spouse? How about somebody told them that your spouse is cheating on you when they're not? And if you believe your spouse is cheating, what are you going to do? You're going to throw them out if you believe they're cheating, but they're not. So the, the straightforward thing on the angels in heaven was they believe Satan's lies. Satan lied about God. God isn't really good. He's a power monger. He's going to hurt you. He's going to mistreat you. He, 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 he pretends to give you freedom, but if you ask questions, you watch what he's going to do. You watch how he treats us now that we're asking questions. He's not going to give us freedom. He's going to cast us out of here. Can't trust him. He'll hurt you. And this raised the questions and the doubts. Yes? Do you think some of them may have been from the motivation like Paul when he persecuted the Christians? He really felt he were doing Okay, so back to the human motivation, yes. Uh, he said Paul persecuted Christians. This is another reason. They believe that they are the bastions of truth, of orthodoxy, and it is their duty to protect the ignorant masses from the people being deceived. And they must go out and crush opposition to make sure the poor ignorant masses don't get deceived by the deceivers. Okay, this is a motivation for church leadership, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Christ said that in the end time that, that his followers would be killed believing that they were doing God's will by killing them. It's, exactly. They will kill you. Think they're doing my will. Same thing. Yes. And so, the, and so then that's the third reason. I had three reasons. You got them all. One was that uh, they, they recognize their popularity is being threatened, and so they're threatened. One is that they believe they're the bastions of truth and must protect. And the third one is that they believe God wants them to act in this way. That God, wants, that God uses these methods, and they need to use these methods too, because they're doing God's will in doing so. Those are the three big reasons I came up with. And you notice they're all lies. They're all lies. Um, how should we treat people who present a different message from us? Is it okay to, to openly debate, to openly present ideas that disagree with others, as long as one remains focused on the ideas and concepts, evidences, perspectives, and continues to value the other person as a person? Is that okay? Is it okay to attack someone personally? That's an, he's an idiot. Is, is it okay to do that? Why do people attack people personally rather than focusing on the message and the, and the evidences about the message? My experience is that people get attacked personally when the other person who disagrees don't have evidences to attack the message. When the message can't be defeated with truth and evidence, then they turn to personal attacks. Look what they did to Christ. They couldn't defeat his message, so they tried to, oh, you, we, we know who our father is. Who's your daddy? Hmm? Hmm? We, you, yeah, right? Question is parentage, remember? Yeah, these allegations. Attack personally when you can't attack the message. Yes? The other thing that's done is to twist the truth about what is the message. Because I've heard countless times, you know, oh, you go to what class? Because they teach this, this, and this. And I have to say, no, they don't. Have you ever listened to it? And... 
the majority of them have not. They've never listened to it for themselves. They've believed the lies about the message, and thus they're turned off. I think that's well said as, all, as well. So um, the question in the lesson, was Christ treated as he was because of the Roman occupation? I don't think so. I think that the Romans, as was said earlier, were used as a um, contravance, a contrivance, a, a, a excuse, a pretext uh, to manipulate people who might not have otherwise wanted to do this. Hey, we've got to save the nation. The nation's going to be threatened here. Romans are going to kill us all. It's better, better to kill this one guy so we can save the nation. And the Romans got used as an excuse to get some people to go along with the execution of Christ. When we are faced with threats, and, and the lesson asks us to consider the logic behind the argument. That all this, the, the creepy, what was the word it used? The, um, the frightening ways that this almost makes sense, or this makes sense. The frightening ways this makes sense. Is it better for an entire nation to die Or uh, for, uh, is it better for the entire nation to die than for us to do wrong? In other words, would it be better for us to do wrong to save the entire nation, or is it better for the entire nation to die and us to do what's right? Which is better? To do what's right and let the entire nation die? Or is it be better to violate God's law, dishonor the creator before the universe in order to save the nation? When we are faced with threats, is it better to stay true to principle and honor our creator or to sacrifice the innocent in order to protect ourselves, camouflaged as protecting the nation? What happened in Nazi Germany? How was this type of logic used? What does the Bible say regarding our future, the future of this nation? Might we be faced with decisions of compromising principle in order to save what appears to be a larger group. Might we be faced with that? Yes, over here. You can, you can see that happening all over the place. Like, in anything, like even with, um, with the concept of what's healthy, they don't, they don't want to teach people how to take care of themselves because it would upset too much industry. It would upset too much of the way things are. You know, and so you have to you have to kind of dumb down the truth. Yeah, our economy couldn't handle people becoming vegetarian. Yeah. Our economy couldn't handle, you know, people actually taking care of them. Think the whole healthcare industry would collapse. Millions of jobs would be lost. Pharmaceutical industries wouldn't be needed if people actually did. The meat industry would go out. I mean, think if a whole food industry would collapse, okay? If people actually started eating healthy and taking care of themselves, uh, well, so we can't do that when the nation needs us to be unhealthy. It's that same principle. Yeah. Okay, so let me ask you this. How about at the end of every action you take, every communication you give, every decision you make, you end with a a sign-off tag to the honor of our creator? To the honor of our creator. Think it through. You sign off your letters to the honor of our creator. You sign off your emails to the honor of our creator. Your communication, sign off. To the honor of our creator. If you're thinking this way, hey, what I'm doing is to honor my creator. Does it impact what you're doing? Yeah. Do we think this way? Do we remember, do we consider the impact that we are actually being watched? Are we not being watched? This is not a theater. The earth is a theater, a microcosm to angels and to men, 1 Corinthians 4.9. The whole universe is watching. 
Should we live? Should we sign off? I'm thinking about putting it at the end of my emails to the honor of our Creator. To the honor of our Creator. Yes? The cynic in me seems to say uh, that sanctifies whatever was said previously, whether it was right or wrong. It, can, it certainly could be used that way. Absolutely. I can do anything, and it's on, but I'm talking about it if you're meaning the true words. If you're actually thinking, hey, wait a minute, is this, is, do I want to say send? Does this honor my Creator? You're asking the question. You're living your life to honor your Creator. You're thinking it through with forethought. Hey, I'm doing this to honor my Creator. This is in harmony with the principles. I will not violate His methods, His principles. It would dishonor my Creator to, as Joseph, how can I do this sin against my God? To the honor of my Creator, no. That's what he was saying, wasn't it? Yeah. Same thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. To the honor of my Creator, I won't bow. And I think sometimes, you know, it certainly could be used. Absolutely. It could become very trite. WWJD, what would Jesus do? Uh, It certainly could be. And that's the danger of doing something like this. It can become just meaningless. But for a period of time, a thoughtful reflection, it it, it can reorientate our focus, can it? Yes. Wouldn't it also depend on the creator that that we're wanting to honor? Uh, Well said. Yes. And I think in this class we kind of have a, a, good, a, a similar understanding of what that means. But you're right. Absolutely right. Some people could burn people to stake. And with a, uh, uh, a meaning, a zealous heart, Paul, for instance, when he was stoning the people, holding the coats for Stephen, to the honor of our Creator, let's stone him. Yes. So I think it's well said. So, in the bottom green section on Sunday's lesson, it says, how does the current political situation in your community affect the work of the church? Should our churches be politically active? Pro-life versus pro-choice? Democrat or Republican? Pro-environment? Campaign for officials who support our values? Religious liberty campaigns to get the right people in office to promote religious liberty? Do you ever notice Christ and the apostles focusing on politics of Rome? Ever? Anywhere? Here's what, uh, just to give a little historical background of the founding and the building of our church, here's some, some comments from one of the founders of our church. This is out of a, something called Councils for the Churches, page 316. There is very large vineyard to be cultivated, but while Christians are to work among believers, they are not to appear like worldlings. They are not to spend their time talking politics or acting politics. For by doing so, they give the enemy opportunity to come in and cause variance and discord. God's children are to separate themselves from politics, from from any alliance with unbelievers. Do not take part in political strife. Separate from the world and refrain from bringing into the church or the school ideas that will lead to contention and disorder. Dissension is the moral poison taken into the system that human beings, uh, by human beings who are selfish. This is out of a pamphlet, 86, page 24. Christianity. How many there are who do not know what it is? Christianity. How many there are who do not know what it is? It is not something to put on the outside. It is a life inwrought with the life of Jesus. It means that we are wearing the robe of Christ's righteousness. In regard to the world, Christians will say, we will not dabble in politics. They will say, decidedly, we are pilgrims and strangers. Our citizenship is above. And this is uh, manuscript release, page 41. 
God has warned his people not to become absorbed in politics. We are not to give our minds to political issues. God's people are, are walking contrary to his will when they uh, mix up with politics. And those who commence in this work in the southern states reveal that they are, are not taught and led by God, but by the spirit which creates contention and strife and every evil work. We are subjects of the Lord's kingdom. In other words, we are citizens of the Lord's kingdom, God's kingdom. We're subjects of the Lord's kingdom. And we are to work to establish that kingdom in righteousness. Neither you nor any of your brethren had any... This is a manuscript release, page 41, next paragraph. It says, Neither you nor any of your brethren had any work to do in arguing or writing or taking part whatever in politics. God was dishonored by all who acted any part in politics. And then I'm going to read one more and then I'm going to talk about it. And this is out of um, Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 475. The Lord would have his people bury, bury political questions. On these themes, silence is eloquent. Christ calls upon his followers to come into the unity of the pure gospel principles, which are plainly revealed in the word of God. We cannot with safety vote for political parties, for we do not know whom we are voting for. We cannot with safety take in any political schemes. We cannot labor uh, to please men who will use their influence to repress religious liberty. The people of God are not to vote to place men, such men in office, for they for when they do this, they are partakers with them of the sins which they commit while in office. I thought we were supposed to get involved. She says, I thought we were supposed to get involved. Did you, have you all read these before? This is just a view from somebody who helped form this church, and I thought it was, since the lesson asked the question, it was appropriate for us to discuss this, especially this year. We've got an election year going on. You're going to get hit with all kinds of questions about campaign. How many of you get letters in the mail, donate to this campaign, donate to that campaign? All the time. Yeah. But think of the principle here. Do we believe when Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would. What do you say? Fight. Is it only physical fighting? Or is there political fighting too? Is that a form of fighting? Do you see the, the apostles fighting politically with the political systems? No. Do you see the early church, the apostolic church, fighting with the political systems? No. This is, I'm going to suggest you, it's a diversion of Christian resources, Christian energy. Satan wants us to fight politically because we're fighting politically. That's what we're not doing. We're not preaching the gospel to free hearts of men that we talked about in the very beginning of class today. He is no longer a slave to the, to the laws of sin and death. He is set free. But we're not setting people free for fighting to get people in office. Yes? I was just going to comment on uh, Joseph and how God does occasionally use people in the political sense. He was a ruler and um, had great influence. And I think if, we are, if people are placed, well, like we have someone running in our community for... Um, a, a political position, and I think he espouses uh, the principles that we more or less believe in, and I think we should vote, even though, I mean, I, where's the line you draw, you know? Oh, that's the question we're asking. Russell? Uh, I think perhaps one of the, one of the reasons behind uh, Ms. White's comments is that at the, at the heart of politics, it involves legislating laws, Making, you know, making and, and, and imposing laws on a populace, which uh, is contrary 
to God's laws. God's laws are, are laws of consequence. God's laws are natural laws. And the politics are imposed laws. And, and there's just two, two very divergent and opposite ways of dealing with things. And what kind of methods are used by politicians? Exactly. Dishonesty, coercion, threats, bribery. Can we achieve God's goals by using Satan's methods? Can you really run earthly governments with God's methods? No, it, if, you, if, you, if you believe scripture, the, what's it talk about the two springs, the salt water and the, and the pure water? You can't mix the two. When you do, guess what happens? And we'll talk all the time about we are to be separate and apart. When you try to mix the church with the world, does the world get pure or the church get corrupt? Over and over again, what do the council say? If you mix the church and the world, what happens? Church gets, world gets pure, church gets corrupt. You can't govern the world the way this world is because the world is corrupt. The world doesn't want God's principles. But what we do, so, so we don't try to conform governments, the work of the church is to convert hearts. And guess what? If the world converts hearts, what happens to the way people live? What happens to the government of the people if the hearts of the people are converted? Right. Okay, so the methodology this is why Satan wants to divert us because he knows if we really do our job and convert hearts, the governments will change, but not because we're focused on changing governments. But if we focus on changing governments, guess what will never change? The hearts. Okay, it's a big trick. Um, let me read you another one because I want to throw some more quotes in. This is out of Gospel Workers, page 387. Remember what, what I've already read to you. Okay, now listen to this. Every individual exerts an influence in society. In our favored land, every voter has some voice in determining what laws shall control the nation. Should not that influence and that vote be cast on the side of temperance and virtue? The advocates of temperance uh, fail to do their whole duty uh, unless they exert their influence by precept and by example and by voice and pen and vote in favor of prohibition and total abstinence. We need not expect that God will work a miracle to bring about this reform and thus remo remove the necessity for our exertion. We ourselves must grapple with the giant foe, our, uh, our motto, no compromise, no cessation of our efforts till the victory is gained. Does that sound political to you? I thought we were not supposed to be involved in politics. What's going on? Does it sound political or does it sound like civic responsibility? Is there a difference between politics and civic responsibility? To be a good citizen, to be an honest person, to do what's right because it's right in your community. Is there a difference between living a civically responsible life and being political? Ah, maybe, maybe there's a difference here. Yes? Doesn't God set up rulers? Sometimes. Sometimes. So, why then should the responsibility lay on us to choose the people to represent us when we can't accurately know what they're going to do? What, what, but but we, didn't, we didn't read anything about we should have a responsibility to vote for people. We never read that. We read we should not vote for people. What we read is we should vote for a certain law or legislation. And, and I want to, want to notice the difference. Our vote, we were instructed to not vote for people. 
but to vote for specific laws or legislations that were proper and consistent. Like if there's a law, religious liberty or Sunday legislation, it's up for referendum. Do you go and vote against the referendum? Yes. Do you vote for the people? This is what she's saying. No, because you don't know their hearts, characters, and what they're going to do. That's what she's saying. Um, let me read one more, though, because we're talking about, to kind of throw this in, you talked, I just read where it said vote for, for, vote for this, this political action, this temperance, to get involved, vote, be active. Listen to this one. This is out of um, DG, Daughters of, is that, is that Daughters of God? Yeah, Daughters of God, page 126. It says, I thank the Lord with heart and soul and voice that you have been a prominent and influential member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. In the providence of God, you have been led to the light to, uh, to obtain a knowledge of the truth. The light and knowledge you need to bring to your work uh, as you associate with women whose hearts are softened by the Spirit of God and who are searching for the truth as for a hidden treasure. For 20 years, I have been... For 20 years, I have seen that the light would come to the women workers in the temperance line. But with, but with sadness, I have discerned that many of them are becoming politicians and that against God. They enter into question and debate and theories that they have no need to touch. Christ said, I am the light of the world. He that follows me will not walk in darkness. So here we have this issue of temperance that we should be active and vote for. And here she has chastisement for women who are becoming political in the issue of temperance. Do you hear it? Why? I thought, she, I thought we could use that first quote to become political. No, I think what I hear her say is, we don't want to be political. We want to be responsible civic uh, members of society to promote methods, to promote principles of health and of righteousness in our community, but we don't want to get involved in the whole aspect of this person running against that person, this, this, uh, this organization running against that organization. Let's promote the Republicans. Let's promote the Democrats. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's get this judge in. Let's get that judge in. This wastes our energy. Yes? But don't you think we should have some discernment in the character of the politician that's running for office so that when we vote, we you know, are hopefully voting for a candidate who will um, support God's principles and his laws. The better the politician, the less capable you will be of actually knowing the filth and evil of their heart. I mean, a man looks, evil. man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I'm suggesting you and I don't have the ability to look in the heart and know who you're voting for at all. My view, Romans 14 comes to mind. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Um, but I, I'm saying that one of the founders of our church seemed to have a clear view. And I'm suggesting whether you vote or don't vote, the energies of the church are not to become politicized. We're not to become a political entity. We're not to use the church to try and get the right people voted into office. We're to use the church, and, 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 we, and the church is made up by members, to convert hearts, to present the gospel message, to free minds from a distorted view. And the politics of the world and the government of the world and, and getting involved in it is what led to a distortion of the government of God. People see God's government running like an earthly government. And the more political we get, the more we get distorted about how God does his universe. Okay, a couple of hands here and then way in the back question about uh, people versus platforms. If you are believing in a policy or a issue, that's what platforms are made out of, and yet 
the parties that are being elected are individuals driven. I'm going to tell you my view on that is, uh, from, from the years I've been alive, is that platforms are what's necessary to be said in order to get the most votes to get your party in office. They have nothing to do with what you usually or actually will do once you get into office. That's my view. Way in the back. Um, if Satan is the prince of this world and our government is the government of this world, wouldn't the natural response or, I don't know, wouldn't Satan be ultimately in control of a worldly government if he's the prince of this world? I don't like the word control, but I would say influencing for sure. I think ultimately, you know, God does have his agents involved in overseeing and overruling things uh, within a certain parameters that uh, that freedom operates within. Um, we do see within the history of mankind that that God has had his agents at times stand up to oppose governmental forces and uh, make arguments that sway a tide in the right direction. But at other times, those same members of God's kingdom were, were, were uh, martyred and killed as they tried to stand up. So I see it going both ways. I've heard this argument a lot that we don't need to vote because God sets up you know, and takes down, and he does, I'm sure. But he also gave the Israelites King Saul. That was not his will for their, but he gave it to him because they insisted on it. Yes, and how well did that turn out? Yeah, it didn't turn out so well. You know, I, I personally, um, I, I think that if you look at, you know, our system, do you really believe that the truly best capable people in our government end up in the highest offices of this nation? No. They don't even run. They don't even run. I mean, really, you, you, you can't make it through the gauntlet of destruction if you're... Do you really think you can actually make it that high if you really operate on principles of honesty and integrity? If you actually said what you really believe and opened your heart up to people, do you think that you would actually make it through or you'd be completely... Everything you say would be twisted, distorted. Just watch the ad campaigns come down. How much of the ad campaigns are going to be about positive messages and how many are going to be twisting, distorting, and attacking the other person? I mean, who takes, in, who takes information, twists, distorts, and, and, and perverts it? I mean, the methodologies, back again, what methods are used? We have a method, and we have a principle, and we have a message that comes from the king of the universe of truth, love, and freedom. And you, I just don't see that message being presented in a political arena. But we didn't even get a chance to talk. We're about out of time. The segue into, is there politics in the church? No. Do we run to the same problem now in the church where we vote for church officers? And there are church campaigns. And you ever seen campaigns go on to get a certain church board leader or a school board, particularly uh, chairman, thrown in or thrown out, or a, or a principal of a school kicked out of their job, or a pastor removed from his office, or a teacher or a group of teachers at a particular university that teaches certain subject. We have to go on a major campaign within the church to have constituencies not send their kids to that school. And uh, I mean, you see the politics and, the, and, the, and, the, and, and what methods are used. They take bits of information here and they twist them and they make them say things that really weren't said and they misrepresent behind the scenes and they stir up a, 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 a constituency behind them. I mean, do we not see the same ugliness happening in the church? Yes. And we shouldn't get caught up in it there either. We shouldn't get caught up in it there either. We need to present the truth in love and leave people free. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that your methods have always been presenting truth, presenting truth, presenting truth and love and leaving us free to make up our mind. And we have been in a battle here, a battle for our minds in which the truth has been twisted by your enemies. 
We ask for your spirit, the spirit of truth, to come to enlighten our minds, to purify our hearts, to, to align us with your kingdom, to help us have the, uh, the experience of knowing that our citizenship is in heaven, that we are citizens of the, of the uh, celestial kingdom, and that the methods we practice are your methods, and that all we do will be to the honor of our creator. We pray in your holy name. Amen.